Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. I hope you and yours are well and well indeed as we settle into the final quarter of 2021. (laughs) Now, I am still shaking my head over that reality, but it's true. So let's lean into the fall, the wind down, the holidays, the reflection and self-care. And part of that is taking stock of your financial future, where you want to be this time next year, what a life in the future of wealth and work and creativity, what that looks like for you. I want you to dream early, often, and big. And I want you to commit. Commit to learning one new thing and completing one new milestone on your journey. And use this episode as the perfect starting point because in this spotlight episode of Tech Intersect, I decided to switch things up a bit and share a best of to capture some of the best conversations I've had about crypto, DeFi, and economic empowerment in particular. I'm getting so many questions about these topics in particular, and so I wanted to sample some of the thought leaders with whom I've had these authentic and really engaging conversations. And for this episode, I curated content from episodes with Fred Brandon and Carmel Cadet, Stefan Delavaux, Clev Mesador, and Robbie Greenfield, an all-star cast of thought leaders whom you should definitely book for your next event or podcast and engage with them on social media. Fred Brandon from episode 65 is an entrepreneur, technologist, radio and TV producer, best-selling author, blockchain educator, and international speaker. And I took an excerpt of our conversation about economic empowerment through Bitcoin and also barriers to participation and the mindset shift that is necessary to really win in the future of wealth. And with Carmel Cadet from episode 72, Carmel is the founder and CEO of modern central bank technology company, Mtech, and an experienced finance and business leader in the enterprise IT sector with specializations in financial services and blockchain technologies. For my conversation with Carmel, I wanted to focus on inheritance and financial inclusion. Now with Stefan Delavaux from episode 67, Stefan is a Bahamian economist and the president and CEO of the Caribbean Blockchain Alliance, which is a regional NGO formed to advocate for blockchain technology and to foster its adoption through awareness and education. From that conversation, I chose to focus on DeFi as a foundation, the supply of and education for developers, 
empowerment opportunities in crypto for black and brown communities, where the real money resides and the difference between money and power. And with Clev, I sampled from the original Juneteenth episode 26, although she's joined us for a number of conversations. Clev is the founder of the National Policy Network of Women of Color in Blockchain, policy advisor to the Blockchain Association, and author of a memoir, The Clevolution. And finally, Robbie Greenfield. Robbie is the president and CEO of Emerging Impact, a benefit corporation that supports major NGOs and government agencies leveraging emerging technology in humanitarian aid and welfare programming. From that conversation, I focused on crypto versus Western thought, mass adoption on the continent of Africa, in particular, the country of Nigeria, strategic partnerships, and again, the mindset shift necessary in order to really lean into and achieve economic self-sovereignty in the future of wealth. So I hope you enjoy this new format. And before we jump into this empowering content, please take a moment to follow this podcast and then like, share, and comment so that others who would benefit from this content can find it. Okay, now it's time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Fred Brandon. There are so many rabbit hole experiences that are similar, and that certainly was the case for me. When I first heard about Bitcoin in particular, particularly with a lawyer mind as well, it's like, I don't know about that. That sounds like magic, mystical, um, (laughs) illegal money. I want nothing to do with it. I don't know where it is. I don't know where it came from. And it was just inaccessible to me. But I've always been certainly intellectually curious, a lifelong learner. And certainly as a law professor, I did at least want to understand the technology. Oftentimes people don't come at it from the technology. And I'm not a blockchain, not Bitcoin person. I may have started that way. And and I think people were taught, I got into the space in 2017. And I feel like a lot of people were talking about blockchain, not Bitcoin, it's just nice. the advent of the ICO boom and bust and, and all of that. So people were mm-hmm. kind of pulling themselves away. But I needed to understand fundamentally what this was because I I was clear after I started to read more that it was distributed ledger technology and this novel use of peer-to-peer technology, the internet, and cryptographic protocols. Mm-hmm. That sounded like a game changer. I was going to figure out the money later. And now where I am, and I know that you are, and let's talk about this, the idea of financial freedom and economic empowerment, particularly in black and brown communities, and what that means for black people in particular. Talk to me about your thoughts about economic empowerment and why Bitcoin and why now? So, um, you know what, there's a, it's it's funny that you say that I'm, I'm looking at a book right behind you. Um, that, that kind of puts everything in perspective. Uh, Isaiah Jackson's Bitcoin in Black America, um, he really touches on a, a, a lot of things that we really need to start putting into our minds and putting into our communities. We have to understand why we need to, you know, start embracing this transfer of wealth. Um, as we've seen, you know, in the last year, especially, you know, it's been happening, you know, for a long time, but over this past year, we can really see this transfer of wealth and how a lot of people are starting to understand what this American uh, U.S. dollar really is and what it isn't. 
So uh, once you start seeing that this is an asset that is constantly depreciating, and then you can start seeing how Bitcoin is something that is steadily appreciating, you know, over the last 10 years, it's going up pretty much 200%, you know, on average. And it's like, okay, we really need to start pushing this into our communities and pushing it into our mindsets to kind of think a lot long term, thinking generational wealth, um, because, you know, there's so many different things that's out there that, you know, we are wasting our money on daily. And if we just decide to put our five to ten dollars a week or whatever we can afford into something that's going to constantly appreciate, it's going to be a lot more beneficial for us in the long term. Absolutely. What are some of the biggest impediments to adoption in the Black community of Bitcoin in particular, and and at least education in the crypto space more broadly? What things are standing between the community and adoption? (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much my my strong point there. Uh, It's all about adoption, right? And I think part of it is the concept, the concept of having uh, something that you can't touch. The intangibility of, of Bitcoin kind of puts people at a disease type of mindset to say, well, if I can't touch it, then I don't really, you know, I don't want to mess with it. Not realizing that you don't touch credit cards. You know, they give you some nice little plastic. It could be cardboard. You know, it could be made out of right. styrofoam. It doesn't really matter, you know. But we've started shifting how we use them, whether it is uh, a chip. You know, it used to be a magnetic strip on the side, then it became a chip and things of that sort. But it's that piece of plastic really means nothing. Uh, when you start thinking about all it's really doing is changing some ones and zeros from one account and putting it on another account. You know, right. so we, the, once we start changing our mindset to understand how money works, uh, and that's really like the, the downfall of you know society. No one really knows how money works. And once we start understanding things like that, then it starts making sense. Say, okay, well, this fictitious money that they told us something was worth, we've lived by that this entire time. Um, We've taken it out of our mattresses and stuck it in their banks where we're getting, you know, pennies on the dollar, (laughs) pennies on the 10,000 for the most part. You know, you put in, you know, a thousand dollars and then by the end of the year, you have a thousand and a nickel. So, you know, it's, (laughs) you know, it's those type of things. Once you start understanding that mindset of having, you know, of understanding what money is and understanding how you need to start thinking about assets versus liabilities, then we say, all right, now we have to start figuring out how to do this a little bit different, you know, how to do this better. Understanding that a lot of people call Bitcoin digital gold. I like to call it digital land, right? Mm. Because this is something, you know, they're not making any more earth and they're not making any more Bitcoin after the 21 million, right? So, um, and if, if I can try to get people to understand that, this is, you know, the world is made out of 21 million acres, you know, right? If you want at least one acre, <laughs> that's going to be your foundation to start building on. Whether it is a house, right. a home, you know, apartment building, whatever you want to be able to build, you're going to need that acre to do so. So if you start thinking about and, and changing people's mindsets and thinking of how, uh, you know, how they think about money, how they think about assets, I think that starts to get them in that mindset to say, okay. This twenty dollars that's stuck in this piggy bank is still twenty dollars when I take it out. You know, it didn't do anything. It didn't appreciate for me. I didn't get anything else out of it. And now, depending on how many years you had that twenty dollar bill in that piggy bank, um, now you can buy less with it. So now you understand and shifting people's mindset and just getting them to understand what money is and uh, and what assets are. 
very powerful. And, and I love the analogy. And I think it is easier for people to wrap their proverbial brain around the concept of the finite nature of real property, real estate, in order to make that mental leap. You hit the sweet spot with the word mindset as well. Yeah. And I felt even I had a pretty good understanding of the nature of money, or at least I thought I did intellectually, academically, but right. not authentically in comparison with just the passive relationship, I should say, with money and just turning it over. It's like you have a keys to the car and you just turn it over and right. somebody's driving and we don't even know where we're going. Exactly. And then you're forced to sit down and assess in order to fundamentally understand and appreciate the impact and the transformative opportunity that is found in crypto generally, Bitcoin in particular, um, you have to understand money. And to understand money, you have to understand value. And to understand value, it's like what is old is new again, like the system before the system that we currently exist in now. Right. And that was a way that I was able to shift my mindset and the mindset of my family as well. So mindset, I think I'm going to weave that into the topic or the subject of this conversation today. Carmel Cadet. Yeah, this idea of the both and instead of either or is going to be critically important for the other six billion, right? So for those who are insiders as a matter of tech and insiders as a matter of finance, and, and obviously we have in this space, the intersection of the two, which becomes this microcosm of a microcosm of exclusivity, even if it's not intended for that purpose. The intention of it was to provide, as you said, the access and, you know, leveling the playing field in many different regards. The reality of adoption is a massive deterrent in this moment in time. Doing a lot of work, as you know, in the NFT space, for example, and and empowering creatives who already didn't want to have a lot to do necessarily with finances or contracts or the legal ease of anything. They're here to create and bless the world with their creativity, but you're going to have to have a few dozen steps to go from your creativity to minting an NFT. It, it, you know, just as simple as like, oh yeah, get a mes- MetaMask and you're going to need some ETH, which means you're going to need to get on an exchange, which means you're going to have to go to Viat. We literally speak a different language. Their eyes glaze over. It is a different language. Completely it different, is. right? So... <laughs> And that obviously (laughs) happens in the financial world as well. One other thing you mentioned earlier that I I touch on in my Advantage Evans courses, it's so critically important, this idea when we're thinking about generational wealth, you don't build generational wealth without inheritance. And assuming in this generation, some Gen Xer or millennial or Gen Zer is acquiring wealth and then leaves this, this earth, how is their family going to know? And what uses of technology with the overlay of the legal aspect of it and the education piece, final point that you mentioned, which is all coming together at this time at such a rapid pace. We don't have years and years yeah. to figure this out. And, and, and talk to me about this idea of financial inclusion and why it's so important for Black and Brown communities uh, throughout the diaspora to really pay attention now and to get in to at least understand uh, so that we're not left behind again. Oh, absolutely. So I, as you might know, I'm originally from Haiti. Mm. I was born and raised there. And I I grew up in an environment that 80% of the population is unbanked, mm. almost. It is a very heavy cash-based 
country and formal work is um, the minority and it's kind of government jobs and mostly everybody else, you wake up, you go find what you're doing today and that's how you put food on the table. Right. So it's, it's a hustler mindset, it's a cash-based mindset, it's a entrepreneurial mindset, to be honest. It's like you have to build something in order for you to have something. Mm. But when I moved to the US, I had a different experience and I linked that back to my access to, finan- to the financial sector, to a functioning, resilient, what you would call particularly upward mobility, you know, driven type of financial sector in the sense of, yes, you do need, you do need a job. You, you might want to build a career if you want to have income to pay a credit card, if you're going to take one, if you're going to have, again, the American way, right? I'm talking about from an American because it's not like this everywhere. Right. But you get into a system that gives you access to $500 credit before you even know what you want to do with it. Right. And ironically, it's like, although I started as an unbanked, so when I moved to the US, I was unbanked, but I graduated college with no student loan because I got a $500 credit card that did not require me to have everything else. I started with that, worked, pay for classes, pay that back, and then got a job that refunded me when I got A's and B's. Mm. And that was my cash flow. That was my cash flow to pay for classes. So you got to get, you get into a system and you get exposed to kind of like different schemes on finance. And I got to work for a bank and then I got an internship at IBM. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time, but they put me in corporate finance. So I got into the corporate finance. (laughs) And it's like, you know, this is a thing. The access of it is what I want for everybody. Right. Right. Because I started a nonprofit organization. I, after a year I stopped, I said, this is not the way to build long-term. I always put my finger on job creation and access to financial services. Those were the two things that I, for me, are very clear. If you want to have a long-lasting impact in my country anyway, that's something I wanted to do instead of aid. Um, So financial inclusion is something that kind of from the beginning, I have an appreciation for, and I said, everybody needs access to this. But for the many years I worked on trying to look for solutions. IBM had mobile money initiatives. I love working at IBM because I got exposed to certain things. But there was a bottleneck happening where the regulatory space and the infrastructure and more apps are coming out saying that we want to provide cross-border payment, financial inclusion, Mm -hmm. but the cost of payment keeps going up. Right, you have more people getting banked, but you still—it's on the margins. It's not kind of breaking through big right. numbers. So, being able to solve that problem—the light bulb that went on—that says, "How come the central banks can't fill this gap?" I mean, literally, the banking system is not set up to close that gap. They have a very different business model. Right. The central bank has the mandate and has the infrastructure to provide that. Now, granted, I don't, I don't think this was possible before blockchain. And here goes the role and why you say, why would a central bank get in this? Like, this is not for them. This is not for them. But there's a love story there. Mm. There's such an amazing love story between a regulator who's, forget the regulator side for a minute, but they are literally responsible to provide a infrastructure that can be used for the benefit of everyone for the public's interest so we wanted to harness that mandate bring blockchain into it and say cash 
is paper today. You have a relationship with people who are unbanked today. You are filling that gap today, but it's just paper-based. How can we make it digital? Mm -hmm. Don't do a database system. Don't do a closed loop system. Use blockchain and use a protocol that's going to give you that um, decentralized aspect of it that cash already has. So for us, that was a clear fit. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. There's a more cost-effective and time-efficient way to reach your leading-edge learning and earning goals, to put you ahead of the stiff competition in this fast-paced, tech-driven economy. You need skills, credentials, and a fast track to a competitive advantage. You need it now more than ever, and I can help. The Advantage Evans Method puts you ahead of the curve with condensed, comprehensive online courses, curated content to leverage your current skills and expertise, live coaching, networking opportunities, and more. Upcoming courses include From Cash to Crypto to help you buy your first Bitcoin, and there are two ways to get your advantage. Advantage Evans Encore gives you maximum experience for your total competitive advantage and access for one year. It includes a live welcome and modules on terminology, buying and selling, exchanges, mining, earning crypto, trading and investing, and also several of the legal issues you need to know in order to be safe and secure as you enter this space. That includes tax compliance, how to plan for a Bitcoin estate, and securities laws to make sure you avoid any legal unforced errors. Now, Advantage Core gives you the essentials. It's a short course to give you what you want and the support you need to buy your first crypto in as little as three weeks with access to the information and replays for three months. And if you're not quite ready for your Advantage and want a sneak peek to try before you buy, then register for a free masterclass where I share my Crypto 101 success checklist and cover current hot topics in crypto. So there truly is something for everyone, including you, to get in on the fast track and learn and earn in the digital economy. Visit AdvantageEvans.com to get started. That's AdvantageEvans.com. And now, back to the conversation. Stefan Delavo. Absolutely. Remittances was always so clear to me why that was going to be extremely beneficial across the board. But for those, you know, the buzzwords are unbanked and underbanked. Even if you are yep. banked, <laughs> it can be very expensive to participate in and intentionally. So I believe this is a feature, not a bug of the system. Absolutely. So, and you know, from your background in economics, that, that this is the way that it was intended to function. And that's, one of the many reasons I'm so bullish on the technology, in addition to 
uh, some aspects of the crypto space, to be sure. And decentralized yeah. finance. I'm the chair of the Maker Foundation and the Maker DAO community. And, you know, just being immersed in decentralized finance and all of the products that will be built on layer one across various blockchains, but certainly in, in our environment, in the Ethereum environment, there are a lot of crazy projects. But <laughs> what we will see is some type of bridge between traditional finance and decentralized finance in a way that is upending some aspects of finance. And, and I'm excited about that. Yeah, the things being built on decentralized finance right now are absolutely incredible. And of course, in the next few months, we're going to see a lot more layer two adoption and involvement. So that's going to be the next step basically for advocacy and, and adoption because then people who may be priced out right now they will actually be able to jump in a bit more because fees will be much lower and that leads me to education so now correct me if i'm wrong from what i gathered from some of the pre-read that i was doing a lot of the education investment some of those the, the projects that you might be involved in involve software developers within the region in particular, um, in order to empower them to build their own projects. That's a nice segue from where we were. So tell me about that work. And then in addition, any other educational initiatives that you're involved in? Yeah. And to a large degree, it is largely software developer based, uh, not only, but that's the focus mainly because this is software, this is technology at the end of the day. And if we want to build it, it has to, the focus has to be on developers. That's, mm. that's kind of the bottom line. Obviously we want other people to engage, you know, you need your business people, your economists, your designers and everything, but right. you have to have that developer basis. Also just generally because we don't and really have never had that many developers in the Caribbean. There's always a dearth, a small amount. Um, you know, the ones that are there are overwhelmed because everybody right. wants to hire them, which is which is good for them. But at the same time, overall, I, I mean, during the lockdowns, all these businesses realize, oh, they have to get websites. Right. And everyone was bombarding these few developers. And it's like, this is not sustainable. So really, if there's any way we can build developers and then, of course, blockchain developers, that would be extremely powerful. I, Absolutely. I, I tell people this, I say it as a joke, but it's not really a joke. I want to build an army of developers in the Caribbean and it would be incredible. I love that. I just love the imagery of it. Yes, I, I claim that for the Caribbean <laughs> for sure, because this is another, if you are a kind of a first mover in the space, because there's so few really around the world, but we're focusing on the Caribbean in particular, that you put yourself so far ahead of the curve. <laughs> By the time that the majority of people figure this out, you have expertized yourself in a way to make you invaluable and indispensable in an emerging technological space. That is power. Yes. And of course, blockchain developers, I don't want to speak for all of them, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say there are no <laughs> broke blockchain developers. I know that's I right. You know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to do. Like There might be that one person. It's... We don't know, but it's hard to do. Yeah. And the demand is just growing and growing. So we, just in terms of education in general, obviously we do, you know, regular talks. You were on the last one. Mm -hmm. um, just kind of, and we've always done like talks, workshops, stuff like that over the years. The last large scale thing we did was actually a few years ago. We worked with one of the developmental finance organizations in the Bahamas to do, this was supposed to be a regional effort, but mm -hmm. logistics just made it difficult. So it ended up just being local. We took quite a few developers here 
it was about 25. We had them do a BlockX course, so it was mainly Ethereum Solidity. Mm-hmm. Um, had them go through that. And then at the end of it, we did basically a hackathon. It was about, I want to say 15 developers that did nice. it and completed it. Mm-hmm. It was amazing, honestly. And I <laughs> kind of want to go on and limb again and say that was probably the most developers in one room <laughs> in the Bahamas that we've ever had. <laughs> and we definitely learned a lot from that too, in terms of like, how often can we do something like that? What's most sustainable? And after a lot of tweaking, a lot of figuring out what we're focusing on now, especially going into the school year in the next few months, Mm -hmm. and this will be the focus throughout 2021 and probably most of 2022, we want to start blockchain clubs at the various universities throughout the Caribbean. Yes. And the idea is basically to, you know, organize these students, bring them into the space. We have partnerships with a few education organizations as well that mm-hmm. will help with this, which, which is great. And yeah, the idea is just to kind of bring them into the space where they, whether they are developers, uh, maybe some of the business students as well, get them to learn about it, hand off or at least approach universities also with actual courses. And mm-hmm. we'll get to that later on. But the core idea right now is just to get these students in the game pretty much. And there are multiple ways to do it. Obviously, the most official way will be through actual university courses, Mm -hmm. but there are other kind of programs and platforms that we'll put them on top of so that they can get a lot more hands-on experience. And that's really the idea at the end of the day. That's really powerful because it's it's obviously changing their life in this generation, but this type of education is not a one-time experience that that is transformative for them, for their families, and for generations. And I know that you, in, in the same way that I am, very focused on generational wealth and how to create that. Yeah. Moving beyond just having a job or a career or even being a high income earner, but about wealth, which is very different. And wealth in one generation, let alone generational wealth, so that the next generation is not starting over again. Because if the future generation is, quote unquote, starting over again, they're not starting over from point one, they're actually significantly behind. 100%. And I don't know if it's just my pandemic counting at this point, because one year is like 10 years. <laughs> I don't even know what year it is right now. <laughs> right? Time doesn't exist. But anymore. I know that time does not exist. We're <laughs> in some type of vortex. I'm not quite sure what's happening. But I feel just like the acceleration of technology and Time has something to do with getting a little bit older as well, but I just feel like the pace, it's almost like I was describing it to a a creative friend, we were kind of riffing, and the idea of birth pangs. Yeah. And the closer you get to that creative moment, the faster things come. That's really interesting. I just feel a a certain, you know, like this, this energy, this energy of what is to be born. So I, you know, encourage everybody to really figure out what that might mean for them. And if you feel that sense of, uh, I also describe it as roots sometimes, gro- not sometimes, growing down before you see that first piece of earth pushed aside mm. as a seedling m- emerges. But there's a lot going on in the surface, like that. right? So what is it about what is to come and how are we positioning ourselves to take advantage of it? Because we have a, a unique, and by you and we, and now I'm speaking to black and brown communities in particular, mm-hmm. traditionally locked out by gatekeepers from tech and from finance, and now we're talking about the intersection of them both in the crypto space. Right. But it's a unique opportunity. And the work that you're doing is really empowering people 
Uh, and I know, let's speak a moment about your views on empowerment of the community in particular. Yeah. And I mean, just the way you said how we're typically locked out, imagine basically double that or maybe even five times that for the Caribbean because mm. we're just, we're also geographically locked out and financially locked out because we're dealing with this de-risking problem where a lot of the correspondent banks that we, that our banks kind of work with mm. are just breaking off business with the Caribbean in general. A lot of the banks that were here are pulling out, which leaves many communities, even the ones who were banked before, it makes them unbanked and it gives less options, less chances to really engage in the economy in, in a very significant way. Right. And it's it's a massive problem. And like you kind of alluded to before, it's by design. Right. This isn't, you know, it's not like an accident. I don't know how, how deep to go here, but it is a, a kind of branch of imperialism right. where the larger countries know what they're doing to the small countries and they kind of don't care. Right. Um yeah. It makes me think of Haiti and and also, you know, it it is to to see things play out over the decades and the centuries. I mean, the the blueprint is already there about how that works. The question yep. is in what ways in each generation do we chip away at that and trip exactly. chip away. And so the work that you're doing is definitely doing that and we are in this time with this next iteration of the internet with global reach, decentralized processes, and the work that you're doing to empower people on the education side mm -hmm. to not just participate as consumers. Consumerism often holds us back as well. Yes, 100%. Being a builder is really where it's at. I always think of like a sports analogy. If somebody's willing to pay a basketball player $10 million or $100 million, whatever somebody gets <laughs> over the lifetime of their career, what's the person who's paying? What are they? That, that's, that's the person I want to be. That, that's <laughs> money with a capital M, right. that I'm in a position to pay somebody 10 large. That's saying something completely different. And that's why, you know, I, I'm really excited to get these students into into the game, because if you get these young people into blockchain, it could completely alter the direction that they were going in it in the best way possible, where, you know, you could have the software developers doing code, building on platforms, building on some of these protocols, getting into, say, you know, the Ethereum Foundation, the Algorand Foundation, all of those. Right. And then at the same time, you have maybe some of the business or finance students diving into DeFi and learning all of this crazy stuff with like AMMs, lending protocols. And, and say uh, what an AMM yields. is, because some people are not going to know Sorry. automated money. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say it. You say it. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Automated market market makers, mm -hmm. um, you know, the finance people will understand yes, how market makers run and <laughs> <laughs> how market makers run in, in the financial industry uh, for stock markets, all that stuff. And the idea is you have protocols like, like Uniswap, for example, where it is, I'm not going to say completely, but is largely decentralized right. where, you know, you have the people who are giving liquidity in a, again, decentralized way. And, you know, you have that liquidity in the liquidity pool and other people can use that liquidity to trade. So it, there doesn't need to be a bank in the middle. Right. There doesn't need to be, you know, someone to make these trades for you. You're literally doing it as an independent unit and everyone else is kind of a part of the ecosystem. And, you know, nobody can turn it off. Nobody can say stop right now. Right. And that's kind of 
what DeFi is in general. It's all these different aspects that are kind of replicating how traditional finance works, but in a complete in a, in a way that's completely shut off from the current financial system. In a way that you know, <laughs> Goldman Sachs and and BlackRock can't just come in and say, "Oh no, you have to stop this or change the game." Right. The, the game can't be changed because it's on these centralized networks, Absolutely. and that's why it's so powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it was something that traditional finance balked at, made fun of. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, how can I get in? This is what <laughs> I love about Bitcoin. You know, I guess you, we have about 19 million in circulation of the 21 million that will ever be in circulation. And traditional finance all of a sudden woke up. Yep. But most of it is either lost on someone's hard drive or already in the hands of the others. And that's, exa- Very that's fascinating. exactly it. Very fascinating. And I mean, you know, the way capitalism works, the way wealth works, is that it, it does kind of concentrate and centralize. Uh, and you can't mm-hmm. completely get away from that. But it's so powerful that like, let's say hypothetically, and this would never actually happen, but let's say BlackRock is able to buy 90% of, of the Bitcoin in the world, right? Mm-hmm. They could own that. And it, they would still not be able to change the Bitcoin network in any way. They would still right. have no actual power. So they would have the wealth, but they would not have the power to, mm. to kind of force any change or, or push anything. And I think that's the most important part. So, yeah, the, the, you know, we're still in the type of ecosystem where wealth does go to, may, may or not still go to the higher people, but the power is not attached to that. So in this current system, the power is directly attached to the wealth. In the you know decentralized system, it's not. And I think that's very important for people to know and to understand. Because I, I do see a lot of hate against the space that's like, oh, you're just making these people rich, blah, blah, blah. And my first question is, who are, who are these people? Because there are a lot of right. people in the space who were not, who did not have any money before. And on the other hand, there is that power aspect that they don't understand. Like no one can just jump in and control things. That is really powerful. That's going to really stick with me and I hope with my listeners as well. Clev Mesidor. I'm an amazingly popular nerd, but absolutely a nerd and lifelong learner at heart. I have, as an educator, I like to look under the hood and tinker with things so that I can explain them in plain plain English. But there's a lot of barriers in blockchain and in crypto for everyone. What are the unique and particular barriers for black and brown communities uh, and, and things that you seek to alleviate and remedy? Well, I think the most obvious barrier that we've all spoken about is the fact that this thing is hard to explain. It took me right. two years to try to figure it out before I could say I understood it. Right. <laughs> and and then I, I run a newsletter, a weekly newsletter, and it goes out to thousands. But it's really my way of keeping up and staying up to date. So you mentioned earlier demystifying crypto. We have to find a way to simplify it because right now people don't get it. And and those right. of us who are in crypto love crypto. We protect crypto. But Mm, mm. Many of us forget it wasn't not, not that long ago that we were at meetups not knowing what this was, asking <laughs> people for help, and now we expect people to know about it, understand it. So, so I think one of the barriers is you know the fact that it's difficult and the fact that sometimes you know the crypto community is not as welcoming as it can be. 
which is one of the reasons I'm so thrilled that you are doing your courses because people, again, people want to learn from people who are like them, whether it be learn from a woman, learn from a woman of color, but also people want to learn in comfortable settings. So the, right. the, the course that you're offering, we need more of that, right? Because people, the access points are clear to us within the crypto community, but they're not clear if you're just sitting in Philadelphia or Ohio somewhere, Cleveland, so that's a clear, you know, that's an easy barrier. Well, I shouldn't say that's an easy to identify barrier. There's, there's also mm. others. You mentioned, you know, the fourth industrial revolution and this fusion of all these technologies and people of color are being left out because there was, there were barriers to access for big tech. And now we're asking them to coalesce around a space that we say is an economic revolution, but they don't understand how to get there. So, so I think, right. you know, in the conversations that we're having about the innovation economy and where we're going, we need to make sure that we're intentional about including people of color. And we're, we also, going back to what you're doing in the academic space, you and folks like Chris Brummer are great in terms of making sure your academic institutions have people who are expertise in this space who are teaching the next generation. Right, right. It's so important because, you know, I'm so committed to ensuring that the next wave of lawyers are, uh, and, and it's a part of our um, professional responsibility to be technologically competent, but you always want a lawyer to be in an active process while these Web3 builds are occurring, not to have the build occur and then send it up to legal mm-hmm. so they can tell you everything that's wrong and why you can't do it. Like we, we're past that. That's so 20th century. We're about solutions, problem solving. Nobody wants a 50-page legal brief. We need to have answers and and this um, space moves so quickly and so rapidly. You have to immerse yourself. Now, I love what you said earlier. You don't abandon the expertise that you've spent your life building. I've, you know, I graduated from law school in 1998. I've practiced a long time. I've been in academia for over 13 years. I don't abandon that because there's a new technology. I figure out my lane. I learn enough across the board to have some competence generally. And then I take a deep dive in my particular area. What does it mean for intellectual property? What does it mean for entertainment? How is it going to change rights and the transfer of rights, real property, um, the tokenization of real world assets? So you can find your lane and you don't have to be a technologist, you don't have to have a STEM background in order to fully embrace it. And you can't wait for that because this is where we are, right? It's just, (laughs) this is where we are. And in order to participate fully and to be ready, like stay ready so you don't have to get ready, (laughs) is to continue to educate yourself in bite-sized pieces. Um, But it's also important that people can get multiple opportunities because as you said, the rabbit hole is real. (laughs) The rabbit hole is real. (laughs) Yes. And, and we need resources. So, and, and that's why, you know, the work that I'm doing on Capitol Hill, working with, again, Blockchain Association and Biotechnology Foundation and Coinbase and others, it's because we need to keep bringing people of color to Washington. I'm excited that we're going to do the congressional briefing again in March of 2021. This time we're hoping Good. to bring 100 women to Capitol Hill. There was such mm-hmm. a huge excitement and enthusiasm and so much so even members offices and their staff followed up to, to to ask about how they can be involved how they can do 
follow-up events. So in March 2021, mm. we hope to bring a delegation of 100. We want people to see people of color. We want to promote the, the people of color who are doing incredible, incredible work and building such strong products. But we also want to make sure that you know, we're communicating to folks how diverse this space is. I tell people all the time that women of color are the fastest growing demographic within the crypto space. It's actually people of color. Mm -hmm. And so and when you think about the innovation economy, people of color tend to be huge consumers. And so we're building the, the, these products and we want to make sure that Congress is not just implementing smart legislation, but resources are getting to these communities as well. One of the legislative proposals right. that I've put forth is for Congress to direct the Small Business Administration to create a pilot, a pilot where there's a 7A loan for blockchain entrepreneurs. And obviously, you know, mm. it would have to be tweaked because many of the stuff we're building, they are, you know, proof of concept projects, they're in beta form. And also they will require more time to actually yield a return. So this would require, you know, working with lenders and to have a different approach to a 7A loan. But Congress is in a position to get the SBA to create economic opportunity, especially as they see so many people of color are already building in this space. And we need to get their products and their services to the marketplace. Absolutely. And that's the, and the important part about when, when we're referring to the space listeners, there's a, a lot of space within the space. <laughs> there's sometimes uh, people who are investors, maybe you are earning crypto, maybe you are building at the protocol level, meaning you're actively involved in coding blockchains. Maybe you're building decentralized applications on top. And I have an upcoming free webinar. I'll talk through some of these things because my hope is to speak at a plain English level to not use any of the jargon, no jargon. It's going to be a no jargon 101 webinar. What are you talking about? Like I'm talking to my mom and her friends on Friday nights when I set them up on my Zoom. (laughs) What can I tell them in 15 minutes that will make sense? That will be the webinar and certainly not to dumb it down, but to to make it plain so that people, and I oftentimes speak speak first about the problem that Satoshi intended to Mm -hmm. solve. And then from that, go to some of the problems that this type of technology can actually make better, faster, cheaper. Robbie Greenfield. It's a powerful point and one that needs to be emphasized over and over and over again. I think this myopic view within the borders of the United States is doing a grave disservice to how we transact business. First of all, how we're all connected. I think, and this is not a political statement, but the inability to coalesce around facts, um, the prevalence of misinformation and disinformation in a range of areas from politics to health to education allows people to otherize more than this nation is already otherizing. I mean, the foundation of this nation is built on this idea of otheredness that is allowed to propagate when you have missing disinformation and this idea of being disconnected in an otherwise globally connected world, which always was the case, you know, when you think of the physical landmass and, and now we're talking about web three O solutions in a decentralized fashion. 
and necessarily having to build technology that reflects and supports that. So that means that, you know, if we're traveling and having to go from dollars to the local currency, or if you're in emerging markets where there's a destabilized economic system and or government, when you go to local levels and local communities where there tends to be the localized government that doesn't support a top-down look of I mean, we're seeing what's going on in Afghanistan and all. You can stay there 20 years or 2,000 years. Culture is what it is. And if governance is localized, that makes for a very pressing problem when you're trying to construct this idea of a top-down where it doesn't work culturally. And money is the tie that binds your ability to be able to transact value, regardless of where you are, is even more important now. And so when you think, final point, of the global The idea of a global reserve that is currently the United States dollar, I think when we come back in a short period of time, we won't be having that same conversation because of the impact of crypto and and, and wondering your thoughts about that. Yeah, no, no, you're you're absolutely right. And and I I think this is, especially in the context of of Afghanistan, I would say that that's just normal colonialism, but... (laughs) Right, fair, fair point. In crypto, you know, it's, you know, just because of how long that whole thing is last, but I would say more broadly to your point, like there is an era of neo-colonialism and how blockchain products and crypto-based products are evangelized around the world. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, a lot of that has to do with, you know, which startups get, you know, resources sooner. And and we've talked Mm -hmm. about before, you know, Mm -hmm. we all know, and it's no secret in the crypto world that, you know, black and brown founders are not typically given the capability of presenting a, a venture capital firm a white paper and raising ten million dollars, <laughs> right? And that right. is the reality on the other side. It just absolutely is bar none, and and that's how a lot of these entities, you know, a lot of these protocols that we know are at name brands today. That's how they initially mm-hmm. got started, or it's proximity to money, right? So being mm. you know very close to, you know, a, a Joe Lubin or a Vitalik or a Tim Draper right that can afford you the opportunity to test things out that other founders you know from from more disparate backgrounds wouldn't be able to test out so that's i think one you know aspect of of kind of you know what's happening here but you know more broadly i think that there's also a blockchain knowledge gap in what we would call emerging markets because a lot of the documentation to develop these things you know hasn't been translated Right. Mm. So, you know, if we look at the Ethereum Foundation, they only started their translations efforts a year and a half ago. Right. It was toward the back end of 2019 when they started doing this, going into 2020. And a lot of the mm-hmm. scholars from the program that I earlier mentioned, like helped in that translation, especially with mm-hmm. Arabic and, and, and others. So those two issues, you know, you know, translating, you know, resources so that can actually be leveraged at all you know, providing, you know, money, you know, to, to start mm-hmm. that have promising ideas and, you know, allowing them to create some of those cultural, culturally relevant solutions is going to be really important. And then the last, you know, the last thing I would say is, is that like this, and, and, and of course we could spend a whole hour on this, is that <laughs> for people, you know, of color, you know, or from people from marginalized backgrounds or people from different countries that are typically underrepresented you know, in, in the West, when they do break in and they do get the jobs or they do get the opportunity, typically they are measured on a sliding scale of meritocracy, right? Mm. Which we know, especially in the crypto space, which is incredibly narcissistic, 
like like we we know that that, that, that meritocracy is just not a thing it's not a thing right and so now you know they've gotten the resources but now they have to deal with the mental health element of just wanting to stay in the space at all because you know they see how um, you know, promotions are doled out or, or, or right. work is not acknowledged. And so there's a, there's a lot of barriers, you know, that cause situations in which you have expat technologies being used in somebody else's country hmm. in a way that's probably not as efficient as uh, if, um, you know, uh, a, a local resident had created a similar solution. Absolutely. It makes me think of uh, some of the reports now focused on the continent of Africa and certain countries that our citizens are a bit ahead of the curve than really the rest of the world. When you think about mass adoption, we've always been talking about mass adoption and what that might look like. And so I've been fascinated by what's going on in Nigeria and wondering yeah. your thoughts. Coindesk did a report or reported, I should say, in July of 2021, and some other outlets picked it up as well, explaining why crypto is booming in Nigeria, despite the banking ban mm. uh, on crypto. I'm wondering your thoughts there and just adoption on the continent in general. Yeah, absolutely. And we did some really interesting research with MetaMask, and it was mm. Global South report on MetaMask users in Nigeria, in Colombia, in the Philippines, in Brazil, um, so all, all around the world, right? And, and the yes, and the premise was exactly that. Like, how are you know global South consumers using crypto in generally, right? What are their issues? What are the use cases? And to your point, you know, why when you see um, unfavorable like policy changes in some, in some of these countries, does that usage persist? And what we found in you know in Nigeria specifically that a lot of crypto literate users that did have access to smartphones, uh, obviously that's, these are not the average residents, right? You know, these are right. the average Nigerians. The vast majority of Nigerians do not have access to these things, but for the ones they do, they used it as a tool to, to build wealth and a tool to smooth income. Mm. And so you saw a lot of, you know, a lot of hodling, right? Right. Cryptocurrency as impromptu savings. Um, but then you also saw that there's still a lot of issues with, in having to go two or three applications over to off-ramp. Right. And so there are a lot of informal economies developing in countries like Nigeria to smooth over off and on-ramp issues just as much as there are company fintech companies coming out of those regions uh, based off of traditional uh, fintech. And so, uh, I mean, I think, and then in, in places like the Philippines, it was even more exaggerated in terms of a very particular focus on savings itself and not as much investment. Yes, Yes. Uh, so, so I mean, these these insights, I think, you know, make it very clear that what glo the average global South consumer is looking for is a pragmatic use of cryptocurrency as a store of value, as an investment tool that can be reliably used, rather than what we're seeing in the West, which is a whole bunch of people with expendable income investing. <laughs> Right. And, and buying digital collectibles. And that's not to say right. those elements of the ecosystem are anything to laugh at. They, they certainly are really, really interesting. And I think you'll start to see similar behaviors around the world. But it's not, you know, it's not, you know, uh, use one. Right. It's, right. It's eight. Um, and uh, but but, you know, unfortunately, uh, th there aren't a lot of resources built in the West that can be portable in, in these other regions in terms of building, you know, those type of solutions. 
So I can imagine that is the reason that partnerships like your recent partnership with companies like Cello are really important. For those who are not familiar, Cello is a mobile first platform that makes financial dApps, decentralized applications and crypto payments accessible to anyone with a mobile phone. And so that type of strategic partnership seems to be advancing the ball even more for the very reasons that you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, the whole the whole Cello ecosystem, the Cello Foundation, C Labs, Valora have all been amazing partners, and effectively, what we're doing with them is really transforming, you know, the Cello blockchain as the most socially impactful, you know, ecosystem on the planet. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I can attest that they are very dedicated and and and, and spend a great deal of grant funds toward realizing, you know, use cases like micro work, like um, exposing people to safe DeFi savings, exposing, you know, NGOs to digital humanitarian aid, which obviously emerging impact and our team has been a pioneer in even since consensus days, Mm -hmm. you know, allowing all those things to happen on their platform. And so with them, we actually have three major pilots coming up, one that's already been announced with Care International, which is one of the biggest NGOs in the world, and that's going to be an equity. Um, and then another in, in Haiti with an organization mm. for Haiti, which this was before, this was planned before the recent presidential assassination and also the recent earthquake in Sud. And so it really shows you how in times of crisis, especially with, with, with what Haiti is going through, how you literally cannot get aid on the ground in those circumstances, right? You know, you, right. The flight paths are blocked off. You can't send non-fungible goods because of the level of security increase, you know, given the recent assassination. Um, and, and it also shows you that despite what we see in terms of these, you know, smartphone penetration statistics, what a smartphone is on the ground um, in a place where there's high need is not an iPhone. It's not the latest Android. It's like the first version, right, of a right. smartphone that doesn't have NFC, that can't scan QR codes. And so it also redefines, okay... What does a digital wallet mean when it comes to the average person on the planet? And that is not representative in the United States and it's not representative in the EU. Um, It's in places like these that are a better representation of who the average person is and what their needs are when it comes to these technologies. So it's the idea of I had an interview on Tech Intersect early on with Andreas Antonopoulos about the other six billion (laughs) There are a few other other people on the planet that we need to solve and strategize for. And that's a whole other uh, episode that, that maybe we could come back and do as well. A final thing I want to ask you about, because all of this is well and good, all of this planning, all of the strategizing, all of the assistance, support, and the vision are essential. Yeah. But the most fundamental thing that I think also needs to happen, separate and apart from education, you can't even get to education, quite frankly, without a mindset shift about what generational wealth looks like, what the future of wealth and work look like, particularly for historically marginalized communities throughout the diaspora. What Talk to me about the mindset shift that has to change uh, if we're really going to be about the business of building generational wealth. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's two mindset changes that need to occur on both sides of the solutions that are being made. On the user side, on the consumer side, and this, and this is both a mindset change, but also needed support that communities need, right? One mm-hmm. is changing from a cash you know, mentality. It, a lot of 
communities across the African diaspora around the world are cash-based communities, right? Right. And 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 a huge part of transitioning to something digital from cash is is that you have to be sure of yourself that you actually can access your money at any time. Right. Right. You know, leaving your money unattended to in a remote area is a foreign concept. Mm. And we've seen that go badly in, in foreign places like the United States quite often. And so that's the first thing. And the thing that they need support on, and I think the things that uh, solutions need to design around is helping improve and incentivize increase in digital literacy and helping improve and incentivize an increase in financial literacy for that particular product, right? So don't make any assumptions take all the barriers of technical literacy down. Don't try to get people to memorize 12 word seeds or right. put in ticker symbols of the stable coin. Just put what the local fiat equivalent is, right? Like mm. a lot of those design obstacles need to be taken down so that these individuals have a very easy entryway to what this new experience is going to be for them. Um, and then of course, making sure that it actually works, you know, in that locale as well. Right. Right. And then I think on the builder side, particularly for black and brown, you know, entrepreneurs is we have to we have to not only build, you know, the solution for that particular use case, but we need to think about like platform building. Right. Because the value now is in development of platforms and protocols. It's not necessarily in the development of applications. And so, um, you know. I would say what could help this mind shift for individuals who are like, well, I don't even know where to start. Like, I, I want to have this impact. I don't know where, to, you know where to start. And I have an idea of some application-based problems that I can attend to in my community. One excellent way is to read the white papers of platforms that already exist. You know, mm. one thing that I think is, is somewhat of a lie you know, in the blockchain spaces is that, you know, um, white creativity is the end all be all as to what moves the space forward. But if you actually look at a lot of these projects, they're clones of other projects, right? They, right. <laughs> no, right. There are very few individuals in the space. I mean, obviously Vitalik being one of them that really insert new ideas, mm. you know, that are, that are core to other things working. And so looking at the Uniswaps, the Aves, the Compounds, and beyond reading those white papers, not understanding all of it. And you don't have to understand all the math, but what you'll see, sure. you'll see certain patterns. It's like, oh, okay, they're using this for this. Oh, okay, they're making, they're using this to make this more secure. And then when you create those, you know, and, and then you also realize, okay, this is what doesn't work in a Nigeria or a Philippines or a Colombia and, or, or in an areas that have Sharia law, which, you know, um, change how you can move finances around and for which reasons. Right. And so when you identify those patterns, you understand your current constraints culturally. Now you're in a perfect place to take those building blocks, you know, like Legos, put them together and make them fit within that cultural context. And and and, and now you have a plan and now, and now you're in a much better place than you were before. So I think it has to happen on both sides. Um, and I would say, you know, outside of that, I, th I think investors need to uh, be a bit more pragmatic and a bit more objective as to how they assess opportunities, right? Um, mm. You can't make investments on the fly for one person for a million dollars because of a white paper and not do it for another. And, right. And I've seen a lot of rationalization within the investor community, even from from black investors, um, you know, to, to be frank, that do that. Um, and and mm. that, that just eliminates the opportunity you know, altogether. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at 
at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.